My name is Terrell Unruh. I have the privilege of serving as an elder here at Enid Midnight Brethren Church, and I also have the privilege of bringing the word to you this morning. Text for today will be in Malachi chapter 1, verses 6 through 14. If you uh, have a Bible with you, I invite you to turn there. If you don't have a Bible, there's one ahead of you in a chair. And uh, we will be on page 801 in that Bible. If you don't know where Malachi is, hopefully you know where Matthew is. You can turn to Matthew and then turn back about two or three pages, depending on your Bible. Asher has said several times since he's been here that we believe that God is smarter than us. I think that's a gross understatement, to be honest, but I think it's true. We want God to be the one who speaks in our sermons here at Enon Mennonite Brethren Church. So in keeping with that, I want to pick up where I left off a little over a year ago when we looked at chapters 1, verses 1 through 5, so that we can follow further the thought that God is wanting to convey to his people in the ancient Near East and see how that word is relevant to us today. So follow with me. In Matthew, Malachi chapter 1, beginning at verse 6. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I'm a father, where is my honor? And if I'm a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts. To you, O priest, who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And now, entreat the favor of God that you may, he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show you favor to any of you? Says the Lord of hosts. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name, and a pure offering, for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted, and its fruit, that is its food, may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is, and you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence, or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. Let's pray. Father, as we open up your word this morning, I pray that you would give us understanding, 
that your spirit would work in our lives, that it would penetrate our hearts, Father, that it would show us our sin and our half-heartedness. Father, I pray that we would be a church who magnifies your name and dedicates ourselves to you. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, last year we looked at the declaration of love God had in verse 1 for his people. We considered the lack of belief that they had in asking, How have you loved us? Their questioning caused him to rehearse the choice that God made of Jacob over against his brother Esau, Jacob being Israel's father. God states his intent to make the judgment he had brought against Esau's descendants, the Edomites, a complete destruction. And thereby he reminds Israel that their own former judgment was not for destruction, but for Israel's purification. God says in verse 5 that though they do not understand now, their eyes will see, and his word will come to pass, and they will say, The Lord be magnified beyond the border of Israel. So that brings us to today's message. Before we get into it, I want to do some background, look at some background with you, as well as some uh, observations that will help us to understand this passage. So if you will, flip over towards the beginning of the Bible to Leviticus, Leviticus Leviticus chapter 1. There are five offerings described in the beginning chapters of Leviticus, the burnt offering, the grain offering, the peace offering, the sin offering and in the guilt or trespass offering, each having its own purpose. We will look just at the first two, the burnt offering and the grain offering this morning. So Leviticus chapter 1, beginning in verse 2, says, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord, and Aaron's sons, the priest, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the side of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Then he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into pieces, And the sons of Aaron, the priest, shall put fire on the altar and arrange the wood on the fire. And Aaron's sons, the priest, shall arrange the pieces, the head, the fat, on the wood that is on the fire on the altar. But its entrails and its legs he shall wash with water. And the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering, with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And it goes on to describe... Several other animals they could bring if they could not afford a young bull. So what we have is an Israelite who brings this animal to the temple. He brings it in. He places his hand on the head of the animal, signifying his sins being transferred to that animal. Then he would cut the throat of the animal, killing it. A substitutionary death. The animal is dying instead of the man. The man would then skin it cut it into pieces, and wash the dung from the intestines and legs. 
The priest would then place the pieces on the altar and burn the whole animal. This was a general sacrifice of atonement or covering for sin. And it was also a whole burnt offering, thus signifying the offerer was dedicating his whole self to the Lord. Notice three things in the text. It said it must be a male without defect. And later in Leviticus, it defines defect as any blindness, any fractured bones, maimed or lame. It couldn't have a running sore or eczema or scabs or any blemish. They were not to be sacrificed to God. Notice also it was a sacrifice, meaning it had to hurt. The whole animal was burned up, and a young bull, perfect bull, was very expensive, and it is in our day too. And third, it was a frequent offering. This isn't necessarily mentioned in our passage here, but uh, it was offered every morning and evening, according to Exodus 29.38, as well as at other, other times. So that was the burnt offering. Let's look at chapter 2, at our second offering, the grain offering. It says, When anyone brings a grain offering as an offering to the Lord, his offering shall be a fine flour. He shall pour oil on it and put frankincense on it and bring it to Aaron's sons, the priests. And he shall take from it a handful of the fine flour and oil with all of its frankincense, and the priest shall burn this as a memorial portion on the altar a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. But the rest of the grain offering shall be for Aaron and his sons. It is a most holy part of the Lord's food offering. And to skip down to verse 11. No grain offering that you bring to the Lord shall be made with leaven, for you shall burn no leaven nor any honey as a food offering to the Lord. And in verse 13, you shall season all of your grain offerings with salt, you shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. So there were numerous reasons and forms to bring this offering in, whether it be roasted grain, a fried or baked cake. But for example, if an Israelite has begun harvest, he will take the first of that harvest in a, in a sack or a basket to the temple. This is called an offering of first fruits. Just a handful of that grain is then placed on the altar by the priest with the oil and frankincense, you notice, and this symbolizes their joy and gladness in the offering, and salt, and salt symbolizes the lasting nature of the tribute or covenant. This grain offering, the word that is used is minka, and means a, a tribute, which is a gift Acknowledging gratitude, respect, or pledged loyalty to a person. This offering was almost always offered up at the same time as the burnt offering, and in particular with the morning and evening burnt offering of the day. So every morning, you have the Israelites saying, Lord, forgive us for any sin we committed in the night. We pledge our allegiance to you and your authority this day. And then again at night, they say, Lord, forgive us for our sins today. Here is a tribute to symbolize our dedication to your rule. So once this offering has been burnt, the priest then, you see, takes the rest of it home for his family to eat. You notice they were not to offer it with leaven, that is yeast or honey. This would cause the bread to ferment and spoil more quickly, and this is contradictory to the nature of the tribute. So they did not want any fermentation, any spoiling of it 
And uh, you will be reminded, I'm sure, that leaven is equated, not always, but often, with sin. All right? Also, the minka is said to be both a soothing aroma to the Lord that is pleasing to Him and a thing most holy. We can turn back to Malachi. I want you also to notice the players in this passage. We can easily see the Lord God and the priests, but we also have one more. The third party is the man or person bringing the sacrifice to the Lord. It's the priests that are being called out here, but it's the man who brings the offering. It's the priests who are the main focus in being rebuked, and why is that? It's because they were to be the teachers of Israel. And finally, I want you to look at the, uh, the literary style here. We have a, in Hebrew, often we see repetition of phrases to drive home a point, to make a statement, and uh, that is intended for emphasis. In our passage, we see a repetition of ideas so starting in verse 7, we tra- follow a train of thought all the way down to verse 11. And then starting in verse 12, then we go to verse 14, end of our passage here, repeating that sequence. And I'll be pointing that out as we go through the text this morning. So if you have the sermon notes in front of you, we come to the first point, God's indictment. It says, A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priest, who despise my name. We come directly to God's claim against the priests. They are not giving him honor or fear. In fact, they are despising his name. And God uses here two examples in which humans normally give honor. And using both of them as a metaphor of his relationship with the nation of Israel. So we see first the, the idea, the example of a father. This concept is probably more familiar to us, thinking of God as our father, than it was to them during this time. God is not calling himself the father of each Israelite. Rather, he is referring to the fatherly nature, the care that he showed the nation of Israel as he delivered them out of Egypt, as he raised them to know his ways and disciplined them to obey his commands. But what is the significance of the honor towards a father over and against that of a master? Why do we as humans normally honor our fathers? Isn't it out of love? I think this is significant because God has just declared his love for the people. But we don't see that reciprocated, do we? The second example is that of a master. And why does a servant normally honor his master? We see that in the text. The answer is fear. I think we need to qualify fear here. We are pretty quick as New Testament believers to say, wait a minute, we're not to fear. Perfect love casts out fear, right? Or we try to minimize fear by saying, well, it just means respect. But the fear of God is commanded all through the New Testament and is a healthy thing. I uh, once had an opportunity to be on top of a grain elevator just north of here uh, doing some work. Uh, the interesting thing was there was no railing around the top of this elevator. Most of them do. This one didn't. And it happened to be on an extra windy Oklahoma day. Any of you had that experience before? One? <laughs> I can tell you I had a little bit more than respect that day for the wind and the elevation. I had a healthy fear of falling that day. So... 
I think from this illustration we can pull out that there are two different kinds of fear. One, a healthy fear of, that causes us to be aware of where we're going and what we're doing. Another kind of, fear, kind of fear when it's too late. When we have a terror of hitting the ground or perhaps the judgment of God. Hebrews 10.26 says, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. So there's a healthy fear, a very real fear of God that we are to possess. And God says to the priests, where is that fear? Can we catch the gravity of this? God is saying, the fear a servant has towards his master is nothing considering the one who is speaking, the Lord of hosts. God Almighty, infinitely higher than any authority. And the love a child has towards his imperfect human father is nothing compared to the honor these priests should show towards God because of their love for him. But they've already shown in the first part of this chapter that they have no appreciation for that love. But they aren't neutral either. None of us are, of course. God is calling them out. Not only do they not honor him, not only do they not fear him, they're in fact looking down their noses at God. The charge is, you despise me, and you have withheld from me what is due to me. So they ask two questions. The first seems like the right one if you're really wanting to learn. They say, how have we despised you? The problem is they don't keep the same pattern, though. And when the answer comes back by offering polluted food on my altar, they don't ask, how have we polluted your name? They ask, how have we polluted you? In other words, they are distancing themselves from the accusation. They're shifting the focus and claiming innocence. Of course, we can't pollute God himself. He is the incorruptible God. And I imagine they think that they've played an ace card here. In fact, though, they've shown their guilt to conscience and that they are not ignorant. So notice what they are bringing. The ESV here uses the word food. However, the word in Hebrew is bread. And I think it seems likely that this is a reference to the minka, the grain offering that we looked at earlier. What they are bringing has been corrupted. It is perhaps containing leaven or honey, or whatever the case, they didn't bring it according to God's command, and they're guilty. He's calling them out on it. God persists in showing them the connection between their actions and his name. They ask, how have we polluted you? God says, by saying that the Lord's table may be despised. And here we have the first of our parallels, repeating in verse 12, says, but you are profaning it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted, and its fruit that is, its food may be despised. All of us has heard the word, the phrase, uh, actions speak louder than words. They may not be literally saying the Lord's table may be despised, but they have said by their actions and carelessness, when they offer up any old animal that comes through the temple doors, that indeed it may be despised. God is pointing out that they are communicating to others that he is not worthy And so his name, his reputation is diminished in the eyes of all who see it. In verse 13, we get a two-second video clip of their attitude. It says, but you say, what a weariness this is, and you snort at it. And I can almost see this playing over and over again. 
My shoulders are kind of drooped. I shuffle their feet a little bit, and they make this sound. All right? <laughs> I was going to blow my nose before I came up here. They snort at it. They, they blow their nose at it, and they say, this is beneath me. This is boring. I'm so tired of doing this. And this isn't a one-time occurrence either. God says, look at this. Look at what you are saying. What a contrast this is between the attitude of here and that of the Psalms. Psalms 27, 4 and 6 says, One thing I have asked from the Lord, that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in His temple. And I will offer in His tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing praises to the Lord. Yes, I will sing. In truth, these priests despise the work of offering up to God His due service. So verse 8 says, When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? See also the repeat in verse 13. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering. This, of course, is a direct violation of the law that God gave in Leviticus. And there is a chance that they are ignorant of those laws, though I seriously doubt it. Or they may just be lazy and apathetic. But really, their heart problem is idolatry. They have created a god after their own desires. They are also practicing atheism by denying God as he has revealed himself to be. The sad thing is that I don't think that they are aware of this. None of us are aware of sin unless God is merciful to point it out as he is here. They may well be thinking, at least the people are bringing something. Or perhaps they have the fear that if they say something, the people might stop bringing offerings and they would not be able to provide for their families. Remember how the grain offering was to be provisioned for Aaron and his sons. Whatever their reasoning, they are saying, it's no big deal. And God says, if you offer up in perfect sacrifices, you are saying not only that the sacrifice may be despised, but that the altar is also to be despised because it doesn't matter if my name is profaned. God is graciously but firmly indicting them of sin, and He is right to do so. But even after they have their sin revealed to them, they are still in need of instruction. So He begins to point out to them their foolishness, and this will be point two in your outline, man's foolishness. Look at the second part of verse 8. God gives them a dare. Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? If this were written to us today, it might well say, try sending monopoly money to the IRS. Do you think they'll accept that as your tax payment? The obvious answer is no, of course not. But then God flips the scenario. Look at verse 9, it says, And now entreat the favor of God, that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? 
This contrasting example is very close to one I've heard many times to illustrate why one small sin can merit an eternity in hell. The answer, of course, is that the penalty is equal to the status of the one you are offending. So if you slap a homeless man, the worst you might get is a punch in the face. However, if you slap the President of the United States across the face, after the Secret Service is done with you, you're going to spend time behind bars. So too, when we turn to offend the Holy Lord, the Eternal God, the only appropriate penalty is eternal. Again in verse 13, he repeats himself. says, Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Last week, Adam preached from Deuteronomy 6, and we saw how Israel was to take God's commands and to bind them as symbols on their hands. But what is in their hands? Nothing but monopoly money. They came expecting a blessing, bringing a sacrifice with the idea that they would receive favor from God, but instead they have insulted God and defiled His name. Perhaps they were relying on the words of Jonah. I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Or they might say with today's generation, my God is accepting of all religions. He loves everyone just like they are. They are walking away, though, not with a blessing and favor, not with their sins removed, but with a guilty verdict. Which brings us to our third point, God's verdict. However, before the verdict, we have an opening statement from the judge, and it's a cry from the heart of God. He says, Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. It would be better for them to close the temple doors, stop the sacrifices because they are having the opposite effect than they should in increasing their sin and judgment. They are storing up wrath for the day of wrath. And here's the verdict, verse 10. I, am not, I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hands. Not only are the priests called to account, but also the offerer here too is suddenly realized. And we see a second video reel beginning to play in verse 14. We see a man who has a male sheep out of his pasture and makes a vow to God and promises to sacrifice it. But when the day comes for sacrifice, he starts to regret that vow. And he begins to think of how it will hurt him financially. Maybe he's lost several of his sheep lately to wolves. And so he decides it's going to He's not going to bring it, and uh, he's going to choose a female with a blind eye. She's always going in circles. Anyway, he figures since the sacrifice is going to die anyway, it would be a shame to kill a good sheep. Verse 14 says, Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. They are guilty, and their penalty is a curse. Deuteronomy 28, 15 through 68, we're not going to read the whole section, is a very long list of curses that God promises to Israel if they are not faithful to Him to obey all that He commands. This is a good chapter to read if you want an idea of how serious sin is. I will just read verses 58 and 59. If you are not careful to observe all the words of this law which are written in this book, to fear this honored and awesome name, 
the Lord your God, then the Lord will bring extraordinary plagues on you and your descendants, even severe and lasting plagues, and miserable and chronic sicknesses. And the list goes on and on. The book of Malachi begins with a declaration of God's love for the nation of Israel, but quickly now we have moved to a rebuke. We learn that love does not negate the need to confront sin. We live in a postmodern society that says the ultimate wrong is to tell someone they are wrong. Yet the prophet speaks the words of God and holds no punches. And this is the most loving thing for him to do at this time. God refers to himself in the beginning as a father. Here he is taking up his parental rights, as it were, over the nation. And because of his love for them, he is warning them and rebuking them. Unless we miss it, let's pay close attention to how God refers to himself some seven times in our passage. The Lord of hosts, Yahweh Sabaoth, Yahweh being his, perfect, his proper name, I am who I am, is declaring himself to be the only existent being, self-existent being, the only one that has life in and of himself with power to command all things. It is essential that we recognize the gravity of this name. Not only is God unlike all of creation in that he exists because he is, but he is also the sovereign over all that is. He commands and everything obeys his decree. So listen to his decree. And this is point four in your outline. God's decree. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. So this speaks of a future time. When is it? Let's break it down and see if we can figure out what's going on here. It says, from the rising of the sun to its setting. This is another way of saying from one end of the earth to the other. And then he says, among the nations. And this is a Jewish way of saying everyone else in the world. It refers to all the Gentiles. Then we also see in every place. Here's a progression. The whole world... Every nation, every place. Pretty simple, okay? But what is the meaning of the incense being offered and a pure offering in these places? You should already know that the, these sort of things were only offered up in the temple during this time. But here we have it offered up in every place of the world. The book of Hebrews reminds us, however, that the former things, the things in the temple, were types and shadows of things to come. And it helps us to know that the incense offering was associated with prayer in the Old Testament. Also, in Revelation 5.8, we see John telling what he saw. He said he saw the 24 elders fall down before the Lamb, each one holding a harp and a golden bowl full of incense, which are what? Prayers of the saints. So the incense here is representative of prayers that will be offered up in every part of the world. So what is this pure offering? Some of your translations may get this right better than ESV and say grain offering that is pure. 
The word here is minka, the tribute of grain, an offering of devotion and thanksgiving. And so this too will be offered up all over the world. But remember that these things are types and shadows to come. So, and this is where, to me, it gets exciting. Because we actually see the grain offering alluded to many times in the Old Testament, or in the New Testament, sorry. And did you know we actually formerly practice the grain offering here? The minka? So, let's consider 1 Corinthians 9, 10-11. I'll have to re- turn there all read it to you. Speaking of the law, Paul says, this was written for our benefit so that the person who plows or threshes should, re- should expect to receive a share of the crop. If we have planted the spiritual seed that has been of benefit to you, is it too much if we receive part of the harvest from your earthly goods? What is Paul talking about? He's talking about the concept of grain offerings supporting the priests. And so we do too, every Sunday. The ushers bring forth the bags, we take up an offering, and where does that go? It goes to feed Asher and Brooke. As well as other things too. But yes, it's, it's the idea of giving out of our abundance to those that feed us. All right, but the minka does not just consist of the morning offering. Remember, it was offered continually, night and day, as an offering of devotion and thanksgiving. Hebrews 13.15 says then, Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. And then remember also that it is a soothing aroma to the Lord. Verse 16 continues, Do not neglect to do good, and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Same idea. Philippians 4.18 says, But I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. Again, that soothing aroma to the Lord. Romans 12.1 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices. In other words, give yourself to God to obey. And we sang the song, All to Jesus I Surrender. Lord, I give myself to Thee. And then we see, after he says this, we see both aspects of the grain offering, a soothing aroma and a thing most holy. He says, a living sacrifice, holy, and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So we present ourselves to God as a grain offering. Scripture goes one step further. Consider Isaiah 66:20, speaking of the Gentiles during the reign of the Messiah. It says, Then they shall bring all of your brethren from all the nations as a grain offering to the Lord on horses and chariots and litters, on mules and on camels to my holy mountain, Jerusalem. So I take from this that when we lead a person to Christ, that we are also offering up an offering of tribute to God. One more. The grain offering is an offering of thanksgiving. And 1 Thessalonians 5, 17 and 18 say, Pray without ceasing, incense, and in everything give thanks, the grain offering, the tribute. 
So in every place, incense will be offered and a grain offering that is pure. And you notice also in our passage there is no burnt offering or animal sacrifice mentioned with the grain offering. Even though the minka and the grain offering or the burnt offering often nearly always accompany one another. Why is that? That is because Christ is our burnt offering. He is the burnt offering for his people, as many as call on his great name. This name, as we will see in our text, will be great among the nations. And this is repeated in verse 14, our final repetition. Verse 14 says, I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is to be feared among the nations. With that in mind, I'll finally turn to, have you turn to Matthew chapter 28 as we wrap this up. Matthew 28, verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. What do these words mean? He's king, right? Just as our text says in Malachi, I am a great king. And what does our king command? He says, go and make my decree in Malachi 1.11 happen. He says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. So just as the priests were commissioned to teach Israel, so we, as a kingdom of priests, have been charged to teach all men to observe all that Christ commands in His Word. And this is the main point, that in every place, men and women will think so highly of the name of the Lord of hosts that they will consecrate themselves unto God by the blood of Christ to offer up to God prayers and a tribute of service to the King of Kings. Do we have this passion to see this through? Do we have a passion for the name of the Lord of hosts so that all that we do, whether eating or drinking or whatever it is that we do to the glory of God? Do we have that passion? If you are here this morning and you have not renounced your efforts to gain God's approval, if you are trying to appease Him your own way, or if you come to a place like this to worship God, but keep a place in your heart for sin, I urge you to stop today, to submit yourself to Christ. He is the great King, and He commands men everywhere to repent. You must come to Him who is our burnt offering. Place your hand on His head, and claim Him for your substitute, thereby consecrating your whole self to Him. It is only by that means that you will be able to offer a tribute to Him that is pleasing, holy, and acceptable. And this is your reasonable service. Let's pray. Father, we pray that Your name would be great among the nations that your name would be great among this people and in this place. Prayers would be offered in your name 
and a grain offering that is pure, untainted by sin, that you might find our worship and our dedication of ourselves and our service in this world to be a sacrifice that is well-pleasing to you, a soothing aroma, a thing most holy. We pray for your work in our lives. Father, we believe in the Spirit's work. We believe in you, O Holy Spirit. And we acknowledge that it is only by your work, by your decree, and by our participation that this will happen. We pray that your will be done, Father, here as it is in heaven. In Christ's name, amen.